My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Guys, welcome back for another good episode, let's hope, of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm really looking forward to what we have to go into, into Luke 7 today. So thanks again for everything you guys do to help promote the show. I'm immensely grateful. But without any further ado, let's get into these scriptures. We'll be going from Luke 1 through 10 to the very start of this. Excuse me, Luke 7, 1 through 10, I should say. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him, uh, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even, page flip, in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is an astounding story of someone's personal faith. And at this time in the world, someone you would least suspect to have this in their life, especially among the Jewish people. Even though he was known as a generous man, even though he was known as someone who looked out for them, he was still a Gentile. He was still an outsider. Yet, we see this is one of the few times that Jesus praises someone else's faith. It is an obvious slam against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But foremost in this moment, it is intended to call out and celebrate the faith of a Gentile who has recognized his need for help from the Lord. Now, we don't know at this point in time, does this man come to faith? Does, you know, does he move on with his life in that regard? Does his whole household become one with God? We don't know. But I can guarantee you, he, he, he knows Jesus. And he's going to stick with Jesus for the rest of his life based on these reports, based on what he says. Without ever physically meeting Jesus, he has worshipped him more than any of the people who have spoken against him have been in his presence and said all these terrible things about him while Jesus has been who he has been. This, like I said earlier, it's just astounding to see the faith put on display of this man who rightfully says, like, look, when I tell people to do something, they're going to do it because I'm in charge. You, I recognize your authority over me, who by every right in this mortal world should have authority over him. But knowing who Jesus is, he submits to that authority and says, if you say it, it will be. And why can't we be like that all the time? It is so frustrating. I am the lowest of the low sometimes in the stupidest matters when it comes to trusting God. It's like, oh, well, you can't get me out of this situation, Lord. 
Like um, you, you parted the Red Sea, you, you raised from the dead and you saved us all. But you know, uh, this test I have coming up, you can't do anything. You can't help me remember the things I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, uh, this issue with my car. You can't help me find the money that I need to get the tire replaced or what have you. It's so silly and stupid just how far away we get sometimes when we should be the closest out of anyone but we should be emboldened by this man who as far as we are aware has not physically met jesus and does not and yet has the faith to ask this for him for his servant that he values so highly but let's also note like we did before that the centurion is, by the standards of a world, a very good man. But this wasn't sufficient for a saving faith. His charity is remarkable, especially at a time where this was not expected. The opposite would be expected of Roman soldiers plundering the areas around them. Like, they could legally do some of these things. There would be consequences sometimes if they went a little too far. But at the end of the day, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Yet he with his money, which centurions weren't the best paid people in the world. They were better paid than a lot of other people, but they're not like millionaires. He used that money he got from his service in the army to build up the community around him in a foreign land. That shows a charitable spirit that God wants to reward. But also, like I said before, let us look inwardly at ourselves to imagine those in our lives, we would never expect anyone of those people, whoever they are, and I know we're all thinking of at least one, they would never want to seek God. It's what we think of them. We see that even with this man's charity, the Jews still saw him as an outsider. And while they wished to see Jesus heal in the centurion's servant, they still didn't treat him as an equal. Now, there's some things here. It's like, uh, if the Jewish people would go to a Gentile's house. They would go and get themselves ritually clean. Because I, oh no, I've been around the unclean, uh, uh, the uncircumcised have to get away. So the centurion may even be wanting to spare Jesus this expense. Be like, don't even come to my house. Like, I don't want you to have to go through all that. I trust you to do what you're going to do. We don't know. It's kind of one of those things some commentators will add on to this. So I can't say 100% for certain this is what's going on. But like, in the interest of preaching more about the subject... I will say that. But when it goes to that one person that we're all thinking of right now, there's no way they can ever come to Christ. We need to identify that person. We need to repent of our short-sightedness. And there needs to be repentance because we have said that person, God can never do anything in their lives. And then we need to reach out to them so that they may know the love of God too. These people, whoever they are, these men and women in our lives, we need to reach out to them because who else is going to do it? Like oh, we brought up before, Paul. Ananias thought nothing highly of Paul. Yet when God commanded him to go out and preach his name to Paul, Ananias did so humbly, and with that, the world was forever changed. I'm not saying that every person you're going to reach is going to go on four separate missionary journeys or what have you. They're probably not going to be the richest person in the world. They're probably not going to be the smartest person in the world or what have you. But 
it doesn't matter what they are, except for the fact that they, like us, were sinners separated from God, and they need him. So do this, just like Jesus did for the centurion. We'll move on to verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus, for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, shows his power over death, proving that he doesn't even need to physically touch this body for this to happen. Like, we see all the time uh, this idea of it has to be physical. It has to be if the power wouldn't work if, you don't, if you're not physically there. And yet Jesus disproves this all the time because he is in command of creation. It is him who allows people to die, and it is him who allows people to be brought back from death. He also shows immense compassion to us, to all of us who go through suffering at the loss of a loved one. Everyone at a certain point in their life has lost someone, or if you haven't, you will. And it's going to sting. And you're going to wish for nothing more than that person to be brought back to life. But that's not where Jesus leaves us in this moment. He is there to comfort us in these trying times, in these awful moments. Like, I think back, and sorry, Mom, if you listen to this, I know it's going to bring some bad memories. But I think of my grandfather's passing when I was in... Uh, the 10th grade. This man was someone I looked up to who's one of my heroes. He took me places to discover things and just hang out and have a good time. Like we would talk for hours about uh, really intellectual uh, ideas and how to interpret the Bible and like this specific type of snake that I was really into at that point in time. And then he dies. And it left such a huge hole in all of our hearts for this great man who loved us very dearly to be gone. And then later on, the same thing happened with my grandmother, his wife, and then to my grandfather on my dad's side. It just happened to us, and it hurts immensely. But through what we were able to be reminded of in those times is that God is the God of life and the resurrection. And these people were solid. Some of them took a little longer, but at the end of the day, they reached out to God for deliverance and repentance from their sins, and they are going to be in eternity, and it is much better than anything here. We lose sight of that. But Jesus, with this woman, gives her something that she desperately needs, and that is she probably has no other close relatives that are able to take care of her. And even if she does, well... Then she sees herself as a burden because at being this, the time that it is, she has no job. She has no financial stability. 
Her husband's gone. Her son is gone. That's the only person she could ever truly rely on to protect her in this world. And Jesus, seeing this, seeing her love for her son, reaches out, brings him back to life, and her life is forever changed. My grandfathers didn't come back from the dead. My grandmother didn't come back from the dead. Your parents aren't coming back from the dead more than likely. But Jesus is still there in these moments for us because he has already proven his power over death. And he will do the same for us when the resurrection comes, when we're lifted up to be with him, when we're we're gone from this world, we're up there in heaven. He has said, come to me, my children. Everything is going to be better if you're suffering through this right now. I've been there. It will get better. I remember more often than not the great things about my grandparents and what they did for me than the feelings of sadness that come from their loss. Not to say that you can never feel that sadness. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel that loss. But there's a certain point where we do need to move on and be better from that, to have learned from that experience so that we can help those who are grieving as well. Also, we see, after all this, how do people celebrate this resurrection, which is good, but they screw it up. And all they do is simply identify Jesus as a prophet rather than God, which shows to all of us who are listening here just how far and uh, reading this, just how far their minds are from the ultimate truth of the matter is that Jesus is God. Jesus is in charge. Just celebrating miracles and the good things in our life isn't enough if we don't also credit God for what he's done in our behalf. I have been immensely blessed in this world. I have a loving family. I have support from the people around me. I have a lot of good friends who are uplifting me, who are reaching out to me to make sure that I'm on the right track, that my needs are being met. And if I'm on my right state of mind, I'm doing the same for them. I'm looking out for them. I'm showing them love and compassion the same way I need love and compassion. But if I then say, all this is a result of me and my good works, I have missed the point. And those words have come out of my mouth before. They have come out of pretty much all of our mouths at some point in time. Don't miss the point when God blesses us. He is the ultimate source of that. So give him the credit he deserves. Moving on to verses 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John messenger, John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. 
What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. This is from Malachi. Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. A lot to unpack here. We see something truly important in this bit of scripture, in that we see on display fully John's doubts over Jesus's divinity. John knows who Jesus is. He's been told what his mission is. He knows who Jesus is. He saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus during his baptism, and then he heard God speak directly to them. No one here that I'm aware of has seen either of those things. Yet he doubted. Guys, doubt happens to us all. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that. The people of Israel, when they left Egypt, God was there as a a smoke cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night every single night. They physically saw that every single day, every single night. And they still rebelled. They still said God didn't love them. They forgot about all the times he had delivered them. And John has seen Jesus. He has heard of the miracles. And he still doubts. So what hope do we have? Well, guess what? What this goes to show us is that no matter where we are in life, even if we had been born then, we still would have doubted because we're human, because we are flawed. So what then do we do with that information? We work on it. Doubt always happens. And if it isn't, there's probably something wrong. Maybe you're not being challenged enough. Maybe you're not seeking out enough about the Bible. Look, there are some passages you're going to read. We eventually get to other sections where you're going to go, wait, I've never read that before. Wait, doesn't this contradict that? Well, if you don't know your Bible, if you don't know people smart enough to say, hey, this is what it actually means, you're going to keep doubting. And if you remain there in that doubt, that's when it becomes sinful. Doubt in and of itself is not sinful. I will harp on this as many times as I have to. Doubt in and of itself is not sinful. It is what you do with that doubt that becomes sinful or becomes prosperous. Doubt is a great motivator to learn if you're doubting correctly. What is always wrong about doubt is being apathetic or denying that it's possible for us to doubt at all. There have been way too many people in the church of all denominations who said, well, just don't think about it and just believe. That is awful. Look, there are limits to what we as humans can understand. There are limits to understanding the aspects of the Trinity. 
or how God wrestles with the problem of evil, or we'll see what else have we here that I can think of off the top of my head. Like there are doubts to the way the creation story is told to us. Like it was it seven literal days and was it all these years or was it billions of years? Like it's okay to doubt aspects of that story. But if that's where you stay in that doubt, you're not being effective, not only to the people around you, but even to yourself. Seek this information out and then come to a conclusion and also recognize that there are people, there are things out there we will never fully understand. And that is okay. We are called to believe in God, but you and I are only human. We are going to doubt him. Accept that. Then do something about it. John, what does John do in his doubt? He sought out further proof to enhance his faith with God. Research the scriptures, ask the hard questions, and praise God that he didn't create puppets who had no free will of their own and thus couldn't control their lives as a result. This right here proves God love, God's love. God loves us because he gave us the ability to doubt him. What other, who wants that? Who wants anyone to doubt them? God doesn't want us to doubt him, but he gave us that ability to show that we are not mindless automatons. We are not robots. We are thinking, feeling, sapient human beings who are capable of crippling doubt. And that can be a blessing if we use it correctly. So praise God for that. Let us also see Jesus is both kind and chiding to John in his doubt and answers his questions by pointing out his accomplishments, which cannot be done with purely human hands. The lame cannot walk by someone touching them. The blind cannot see by someone touching them, by someone praying over them, by someone commanding them that their sins be forgiven. Only the power of God could possibly achieve what Jesus has done. Yet, he also kindly, and I say stress kindly, chides John for his doubt. As Jesus knows better, excuse me, as, <laughs> Jesus, as John knows better and has let the things of this world distract him from his ministry. But Jesus did not abandon John to his doubt, even when he admonishes him. We need people in our lives who are going to call us out when we know we're doing something wrong, or maybe we don't even know, and we need to hear their voice. This should be done with love. Jesus reprimands John with love. He didn't say, okay, you're doubting me? Well, you're done for. No. Let me help you, but John, you know better, so let's work on this together. Also with this, Jesus doesn't stay there. He praises John to the people around him. Like, they have just heard this John doubts who Jesus is. So Jesus doesn't let it stay there. He praises John, proclaiming him as the greatest man there for his ministry. However, compared to those who are the least in heaven, John is nothing. None of us are the greatest, but we can all strive to be the least as we act humbly and righteously to honor God with our words and actions. John was the greatest there as far as preaching was concerned, as far as leading people to Christ was concerned outside of Jesus himself. But we are not always called to be the best. We are called to be faithful. And sometimes it's not going to look like we're successful by being faithful. And that's okay. We submit 
what God has given to us in humbleness, and he will reward us and praise us for what little we've done that does not look impressive. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm never going to be Billy Graham. I'm not Paul. I'm never going to be Paul. I'm not St. Augustine. I'm never going to be St. Augustine. And that's okay. You know why? Because that's who they were meant to be. I'm called to be Christian, Ashley. You are called to be you. And what God chooses to do with that, with you, with us, we should praise him for it. After this, Jesus then rightly condemns the generation of people who will see his mighty works and reject them, as they will have no excuse before God when their judgment comes for why they said no to his son. So the same is true for us if we deny God who God is after seeing the world he made, the wonders he created, and the miracles he's performed for us, no matter how small. No one has any excuse before God. Like, I, I didn't know you. It's like, look, you should know something. And we can wrestle with that question later on uh, in Romans where we can, as we get to that, like, how is it possible for someone who's never met God to know God? Like, would they be judged guilty? Like, we'll get there later on, I swear. Next up, we'll go to verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined it at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, page flip, and wiped the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped ceasing to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Truly, this is yet another example of the wondrous love God has for his people who know the weight of our sins, who know just how awful we are, how terrible we are, how low and worthless we are compared to him. Jesus does not condemn this woman once she has realized her need for a savior. He has compassion on her and rewards her for her faith. This is the loving Jesus the world needs. Too often, we see people abuse his name and his authority to say terrible, spiteful, evil things, proclaiming it to be good. This does not need to happen. We need to get our minds right about who Jesus is. There is a difference between calling out sin and hating that person for sinning. 
We need to make sure that when we call out sin, like Jesus does, he calls out her sin. He doesn't pretend like she's always been righteous. But he did it in a loving manner. He saw the immediate need of this woman, and then he offered it to her. She recognized her own sin, and she sought repentance from the only one who has the authority to forgive. We need to do the same. Jesus is the only one who can forgive. He's the only one we can turn to to repent. But we can be the people who, as followers of Christ, bring other people to that realization. And if all we're doing is spewing hate, all we're doing is beating down people for their sin while we're hiding our own in the closet and no one else can see it but me, then we are worthless. Worthless as ambassadors for Christ. The world deserves better than Christians who mock, than Christians who hate, than Christians who have no time of day for anyone who is not as righteous as them. We become like the Pharisees when we do that, and we completely miss the mark. Do not end up like this. Be better. Seek help if you get angry about stuff like this. Talk to people in parts of the world, in parts of different groups that you typically wouldn't associate yourself with, so you can understand where they are and where they're coming from. It's so simple, but we refuse to do it because it's work. We refuse to do it because it's easy to stay where I'm at. I'm content where I'm at. That's not how this works. We are called to reach out to a world that is dying. And it does not know it's going to be dead until that fact is brought to their face. And this fact was brought to her and she repented. Do the same with the people around us in love. Once again, we also see Jesus respond to someone's innermost thoughts, proving that nothing can be hidden from him. We have all been like the Pharisee, Simon, almost every single day of our lives. We constantly make judgments on others for their sin while ignoring our own and then declare ourselves righteous for not being as bad as them. God sees this. God hears this. And God condemns this way of thinking. None of us, none of us are righteous enough to deserve his love, yet he gave it anyways. Let us all be clear, excuse me, let us all clear our thoughts and learn to love our neighbor no matter who they are so that they can know the love of Christ. This woman, everything has been forgiven. She knows everything. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, yeah, they still sinned. But comparatively speaking, if they were doing things right, I mean, statistically, they probably sinned a lot less than other people. But at the end of the day, both of them needed Christ. Yet the one who has sinned the least does not recognize their need for a savior because they're devoting themselves to other matters. They don't look at their own sin the same way this woman is looking at hers. That is not how we need to react to the world. We need to be better. We see, once again, Jesus forgives someone's sins. Something no one else can do. Naturally, the rabbis and Pharisees are upset at this because they want that same authority, as all prideful men and women do. Jesus calls this out by his compassion for the woman and condemns her no more for her sin, marking her as his own. And so the same is true for all of us who have repented from our sins, no matter how small or how great our sins are. 
be grateful for that. Rejoice in that for those of us who have repented, for those of us who have turned away from who we used to be and are working towards him. This is a blessing. This story is a great blessing. But we got to read it correctly. We've got to love correctly. So guys, thank you for this. I had to do this a little shorter than what I normally would do because I had the vocal cord this week and I don't have as much time, even with it being spring break. So by the time you're hearing this, I'll be on the road heading back from Chicago to good old Louisville after having spent the weekend there with family. So hopefully that'll be a great time. I'm really look, looking forward to see everyone. I'm going to be really a little tired as I'm listening to this in the morning because I'm not a morning person, as we've all noted. So hopefully hearing my voice chide me and make fun of me will perk me up a little bit. Maybe it'll do that for you as well. So guys, thank you once again for listening. Please, if you have the time, just leave us a five-star review. I'd love to hear a written review. Like if, But if all you want to do is just put that five-star there, I'm not going to stop you. Either way, it's an immense blessing, and I'm very grateful for it. You can also find me as a roundtable guest on the Whole Church Podcast, as well as one I'm one of the hosts of the Systematic Ecology Podcast. If you're, uh, excuse me, speaking of the Whole Church Podcast, we got to add this to the outline. If you're interested in attending the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue event, the convention that is happening on May 11th to the 13th, this will be in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, please realize that this is going to be fun, number one. There's going to be a really a great group of guys there and women who are very on fire for the Lord, very willing to talk about the issues happening around us. And it's just going to be a fun time. We're just going to geek out on some stuff. We're going to just ha- enjoy each other's company. Like I'll be meeting some of these guys for the first time in person, and I'm really looking forward to that. But what has been offered to you, my dear listeners, is a special code that if you put this in, you will get $20 off of your ticket price. This code is unmoved, and that's in all caps. Like I said, $20 off your tickets for a three-day event. Pretty dang good deal, if I do say so myself. So if you're interested in doing that, please, we'd love to see you. I'd love to talk to you. You want to talk about the show? You want to talk about what's going on in your life? Let's do this thing. It's going to be fun. I'm so hyped for this. I can't wait. But also, like I was about to say before I remember this, you can also find... uh, If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name M.C. Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the My Seminary Life podcast hosted by Brandon Knight and the Buddy Walk With Me podcast hosted by Joe Day. Both of those guys are real solid. You're going to get some good teaching there. I highly recommend them. Go check them out. At the end of the day, you can contact us at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing your emails there. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.